Well, you may be wondering what I was doing Wednesday night when I was not here teaching Bible study, and the answer is I was taking my, uh, my boys to see uh, the Thunder play the uh, Denver Nuggets in Oklahoma City because I have a friend uh, who is a coach for the Nuggets, so that was kind of a fun experience. And, uh, but I broke one of my cardinal rules. We, we parked in the uh, parking garage, and as we were coming up the stairs out of the parking garage, I broke just that rule you don't break. I put my hand on the handrail. And uh, as we all know, there is nothing quite as gross as parking garage handrails. And as I let, I mean, immediately when I, when I grabbed that rail, I felt it and I felt repentance. And there was goo. I don't know how else to describe it. There was goo on the underside of the handrail. It, it, was, it wasn't water. It was definitely not water. And it was yellowish and it was thick. And I began, I wiped my hand on the wall immediately, and I wiped my hand on my pants. And, and you know, coming into the, the stadium, I found the, the hand purifier, and as soon as I could, I went to the bathroom. But no, to, this, to this day, five days later, my hands are not clean. There is nothing I can do to get goo, that feeling of goo, off my hands. They're just, I don't think my hands will ever be clean again. And, uh, you know, I think there are people who feel that way, who feel that way about themselves. Maybe uh, at some point in the past they had a breakup, and somebody that they loved rejected them. And they just wonder if anybody's ever going to want them again. Maybe you committed a sin that you just thought you would never commit. Maybe... um, Somebody sinned against you in a way that made you feel worthless and, and unwanted and un- unwantable. And you honestly wonder if you'll ever be clean again. You've kind of given up on it. And, and if that's you, then I've I got great news for you today. What God has made clean, no one can call common. What God has made clean, no one can call polluted. Maybe you're on the other side. Maybe there are just certain people in this world who don't deserve to really share a world with you. Maybe, there are certain, maybe there's a certain class of humans, a certain class of sinners, whatever, that you just think are the enemy. And you really wish, you really think, uh, the world would be better without them. Maybe it's people of a different tribe, people of a different politics, people who drive hybrids, people, whatever it is. You just think the world would be better without them. And I got news for you. What God has made clean, no one can call common. No one can call common. Uh, our text today is about Peter getting an alarming message. Uh, it's a message that, that, that rings in his ears, and it takes a lot to get him to believe it. God himself has to repeat himself three times to get him to believe it. What God has made clean, no one can call common. Please stand as we read this text, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you kind of the story behind it after we read it, to put it, into, put it into context. Hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. 
So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all of our glories like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. What God has made clean, no one can call polluted. Now, this, uh, the book of Acts is interesting. It, it spans 30 years. But there are certain times when it just goes into slow motion. It's kind of like the, uh, the movie Oppenheimer that some of us try to get through this summer. And uh, if you watched it, I, I've never seen a movie with a better use of a soundtrack. Because the soundtrack just drives you through the movie. just And it kind of keeps you involved and, and convinces you that this movie is fast moving, even though it's not. And, uh, but there's one point, if you've seen the movie, you know there's one point when the soundtrack just goes silent. And time stops. And you see this, this, nuclear, this first ever nuclear explosion and the expression on everybody's face and, and just... Time comes to a stop. That's essentially what happens in Acts. I mean, th- things have been happening. Time's been passing. Like I said, it's going to span 30 years. It's really about to speed up. It's from this point um, as we go through the life of, of uh, Paul. But here it stops. And it, it says, you, you've got to see this. And Peter gets a vision, and he, we, we, he, we tell the story three times. He has the vision, and then he retells the vision, and then he summarizes it again. And Cornelius gets a vision. And Cornelius gets the vision, and he retells the vision, and he retells the vision again. And, and God is saying, this is important. This is important. I have made the unclean clean. And so let's, uh, let's, let me explain kind of what's going on here. Cornelius is a God-fearing Gentile. He's a Roman soldier. That's pretty nasty. Um, they are despised because they're not, they're religiously unclean. They're not Jewish. He's a member of the, the foreign army who's done terrible things. They're known for their just crudeness and their absolute violent destruction. And, and he's part of this oppressive regime. But, for whatever reason, he has seen Jews and he has respected them, 
and has begun to believe in the God that they believe in, and he prays, and he, and he gives money to the poor. And one day during his regular prayer time, an angel comes and visits him. Can you? And he says these magic words, these words that are just so powerful. God has heard your prayer. Wouldn't you love to hear those words? God has heard your prayer. God's heard you, Cornelius. And there's a man who's at, staying at the house of Simon the Tanner down um, on, the, in, on the beach in Joppa. Send to him. His name is Peter. And he's going to teach you the way. He's going to tell you the good news. So Cornelius is excited. And he sends people down. Uh, it's about a day's journey. It's about 40 miles. And uh, he sends them. The next day, about the time that these, these men are arriving, Peter is at this house in Joppa, and he's hungry, and he lets the people there know that he's hungry, and they're going to prepare a meal for him. It's kind of a sign of respect, you know, that the apostles come to stay at our house, and, and he goes up on the roof, probably looking out at the coast. We're told the house was on the beach, probably looking out at the Mediterranean there. Sounds like a great view. And... Uh, Maybe in the Sea of Galilee. I'm sorry, I'm not great at geography, but you know, you get the idea. Um, he's looking out at this body of water, and he's hungry, and he starts praying, and he gets a vision. And this vision is strange. It's a vision of, of a huge sheet coming down from heaven, and the sheet is filled with nasty animals, with reptiles and, and birds and all kinds of strange things. And he hears this voice saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he says, oh, no, 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 not me. That stuff's gross. That stuff's dirty. Come on, it's very important to me. It's my identity. It's my religion. Lord, you know me. I've never eaten anything unclean in my whole life. And he hears this voice saying, what God has called clean, don't call common. And he's thinking about it, and he gets the vision again. Kill and eat. No, not me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't eat that. That's nasty. What God has called clean, don't call common. Again, he gets the same vision. He's hungry, and he's like, Lord, don't you get it? And you've got you to think to yourself, how much is he remembering right now? Is he remembering the three times he denied Christ? Is he remembering the three times Christ restored him? Do you love me? Is, it, is he wondering to himself, why am I so dumb that it's always three times? I don't know. Kill and eat. No, Lord, it's dirty. What I call clean, don't call dirty. And he's sitting there thinking about it. Does God really want me to eat buzzards? Surely not. And three men come and knock on the door downstairs, and he hears a voice saying, go with them. And so he starts to get it, right? And he has a day's journey, and he's walking, and he's like, oh, no, this wasn't about food. This is about people. Surely not. Oh, my gosh, surely not. And he arrives at Cornelius' house, and he walks in, and he says, Now look, I would never come into a house of a person like you. Isn't that a pleasant thing to say? I would never, ever even come into your house. But God showed me that what he calls clean, I should not call common. So what do you want? It's like, that's nice, Peter. That's good. That's good evangelism. And Cornelius says, you got to kind of wonder if he pushes back. I'd never ask somebody like you to come in my house. But God told me to send after you. 
and that you would bring me good news. So what have you got to say? What would you say? What would you say? Someone just gives you the open invitation. All right, I hear about this good news. I've heard about this Christianity thing. What is it? And Peter begins. And the first thing he does is he announces that there is good news. There is good news of peace. Look at verse 36. He says, now I know, if I can get my bulletin out. I want to quote it correctly. Verse 36, Peter opens his mouth and he says, As for the word of him, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. What is he saying? He's saying the war's over. There's good news of peace. Now that, that's a phrase that meant something. It certainly meant something to a soldier like Cornelius. It meant that the, the message is here. They didn't get, they weren't in a constant 24-hour news cycle right? They didn't get news every time they opened their phone. They didn't have constantly getting, uh, you know, their, their sermons interrupted by people getting news uh, headlines flash on their phones. They got news very seldom, and especially when there was a war out, and there was wars all the time, heralds would come back to their town and tell them who won. And this is a good news, this is that, in that context, I have good news. The war is over. And God has won. There is peace. The war between God and man is over. I've got good news of peace. God has won the war. Now, it's the kind of thing that uh, he's saying, he's wrapping the entire gospel up in that, that the war between good and evil is over. God has won. Jesus has defeated Satan both in this life. He, he went around healing and, and casting out demons. He defeated Satan in this life. He defeated Satan by not giving him the temptation. He defeated Satan by giving up unto death. He, he defeated sin by paying the price for sin. He defeated hell and, and the grave by going into the grave and, and blowing the back out of it so that uh, through his resurrection. And now he is the judge of all. He is the king who decides your eternity. He is the judge. That's all, all in that message that he gives. It's, it's actually very close and probably um, in seed form, the Apostles' Creed. Jesus was alive. He healed. He died. He was crucified. He was hung on a tree. He was put in the grave. He rose again. He, he talks about, not only did he rise again, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a vision like the vision of the sheet coming down. There was no sheet, right? That was a vision. It's not like a, a vision of, of something that you have in your mind. Jesus rose again. He ate with us. He drank with us. He stresses that. It was a physical resurrection. And he is the judge of all. What matters about your eternity, what determines your eternity, is your allegiance to him or your lack of allegiance to him. That's what matters. You see, it's like, it's like a herald coming back from the front saying, um, Jesus has won the war. He's won it. So either start paying fealty to him or continue on the other side. It's your decision. 
Once he gets back, he's going to judge. He's going to separate. But you have time now. And it's the kind of message that demands action. It's like, um, well, it's like my son got an uh, email this week that really caused, alarmed him. You know, and it was, the email was about debt and having his debt consolidated. And, uh, and he's, it was alarming to him because he has no debt. <laughs> and he's like, well, is there something I don't know? And he calls me up, and he's like, will you go through all of my mail and make sure I don't have some debt that I don't know about? He doesn't know that he's going to get this email every month for the rest of his life, right? And there's people out there trying to get you to do away with your debt by taking on more debt. And, uh, but, you know, he, it was alarming to him because he didn't know if it was true or not, and it was, there was consequence to it. You know, if you get a, a letter from the IRS tomorrow that says you owe four million dollars you're going to check into it it's probably not true i've never made four million dollars i've like all the money i've ever made my whole life doesn't amount to that but still i'm going to check into it because it's consequential i need to know and this this good news that peter brings it it demands action it's consequential has is jesus really the victor, has he really defeated evil? Is it really a matter of me being on his side? Is that, a, is that a, a matter of all eternity, being on his side? And that brings us to the response of, of faith. The, the next two points are, are faith and repentance. That's the, the action that's demanded. And in verse 43, he tells us about faith. He says, to him... All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of their sins through his name. What is it? I want to just take a moment, have our kind of Oppenheimer moment when we stop, and talk about what does that mean, to to believe in him. And, And the first thing I want you to see is this belief is linked to historic facts. It's not some kind of vague faith. You know, so-and-so is a man of faith. Great. In what? Uh, and, And in our particular culture, what that typically means is we have faith in faith. That we believe that what we want to happen is going to happen. And if I believe in faith enough, if, I, if my faith is strong enough, then I can make things happen. It's faith in faith. That is not what Peter is talking about. It's not faith in some vague God. It's not, well, I believe in God and I get, get great comfort from that. I, that's good. I'm not trying to take that away from you. But that's not what Peter is talking about. That's not what the Bible talks about. That's not saving faith. Saving faith in the Bible is belief in a particular historic person who was born, who lived, who was crucified on a tree, who was, who ra- was raised from the dead, who ate and drank with his disciples, and who was ascended into heaven. It's, it's, it, uh, it has a historic factualness to it. 
that's what faith is. That's what the faith is in, that I believe that. And, and some of us don't. And I, I urge you, I beg you, if you don't believe that, examine it. There are reasonable, rational humans in this room who do believe that. You don't have to be strange. Well, we're a little strange, but everybody's a little strange. But it, it's, it's, not a, it's not a flight of fancy. It's not insanity to believe that. It has a historic fact to it. That's what it means to have saving faith. It has that kind of definition, that kind of content. And saving faith is also an allegiance. It means these people are my people. This truth is my truth. I am what they are. This is me. I'm I'm 100% invested in this. It's... um, I'm sorry, this is a very stupid illustration, but it's the best I got, okay? It's like that terrible day when you decide that you have a favorite football team, and you really love them, and you care about what happens to them. And why do I call that day terrible? Because you're probably going to have, most likely, according to overwhelming odds, you're going to end every year sad. Right? I mean, there's only one team that's going to come out the champion next week. There's 31 teams that won't. And so all 31 of those teams had a really bad day at some point. Right? When you're like, and, and to, to be invested, or to be your team, means you were really sad when they got beat. That's it's, it's your identity. It's who you are. When, I, when you bring your children to me to join the church, that's kind of what I ask them, I tell them. It's like, when you join the church, it means you don't just like the church because your parents bring you. It's like saying you don't just like the Cowboys because your parents like the Cowboys. They are your team now. Yeah, I like the Cowboys. That's not what I meant. Uh, but, you know, you try, you try. And, and to be invested in Jesus means that's, that's my identity. His opinion is what I care about. This is who I am. I and yes, that means sometimes I claim brotherhood with people that I may not approve of, but they're my people, and I love them. And as long as they continue in the church, they are my people because that's who I am. This is my team. That's what it means. You, you, you've invested yourself. You don't just believe it. You, don't, you certainly don't believe it like you believe a, a legend. You, you believe the historic facts, and you've invested yourself in it. And that investment requires another part that we call repentance unto life. Now, we don't have this verse in our text, but when you get home today, look up uh, chapter 11, verse 18. Peter, (laughs) the Jews aren't real proud of what he's done here. (laughs) And they call him in. They go, we hear you went into a Gentile house. Care to explain yourself? So he goes through the whole thing again. I had a vision. These men came and got me. I taught them the gospel. And when I explained the gospel and they believed it, the Holy Spirit fell on them, the same Holy Spirit that fell on Jesus, the same Holy Spirit that fell on us. Who, if the Holy Spirit's falling on them, how can I not baptize them? And they gave glory to God. And the Jews said, then it's true. That God has given the, the, the Gentiles repentance unto life. 
Repentance unto life. What is that? That's the, that's the second half of saving faith. Saving faith is not just faith, like you have faith in uh, your parents to give you birthday presents, or you have faith in uh, your spouse to not cheat on you. Saving faith is, is a faith that says, I am putting myself in you, and I'm turning away from everything else. I'm turning away from, from the other things in life that, that, I've, that I've entrusted myself to. Now, there's repentance. There's all kinds of people out there repenting. We repent every day. You repent of being uh, you know, a Vanderbilt football fan, wasting life with that. You repent of spending too much at Costco. You repent at, uh, of drinking too much. And sometimes those repentances are big. Um, you know, that's what a lot of kind of moral um, cleansing and, and moral turnarounds are. They're, they're repentances. Um, it, but it's not repentance unto life unless it's linked with faith. There's a great example. Um, it was this 70s rock star named Alice Cooper. It was very weird. Uh, but made a living off of it. He's a glam rock kind of guy. And uh, he was an alcoholic, which is not a surprise to anyone who's ever listened to his music. And, um, but the alcoholism was wrecking his life. And so he went through AA and he gave up alcohol, right? That's repentance. But he wasn't repentance unto life. He wasn't converted. He just became, he went from being a compulsive alcoholic to becoming a compulsive golfer. And he golfed every day, at least 18 holes, 36 holes many days, like that became his new compulsion. He went from being a compulsive drinker to being a compulsive golfer. That's not salvation. We're, it's healthier. I mean, golf is one of the healthiest things you can possibly be addicted to in my mind. But uh, it's still addicted, right? It's still unhealthy. And, and he began playing golf with uh, a theologian named R.C. Sproul, who also happened to golf every day. And so they were in the same golf club in Orlando. And R.C. Sproul taught him the content of, of faith and called him to repentance. And at one day, Alice Cooper believes on it. That's repentance unto life. It's, it's turning away from whatever it is that's getting you through life, whether it be your intelligence and this, this um, comfort you receive of being more intelligent than everyone else, or your independence, and that's one of the things that most of us have to repent of. We, we take such great pride and we go to such great lengths and extents to prove that we're independent from our families and our, our parents and from, from our church and whatever we grew up around. And, and we, have to, we have to repent of that and instead turn to Jesus and say, I can't get through life on my own. I can't rely on myself. We have to repent away from um, the love or our trust in money and turn to him and, and trust him with it. Um, C.S. Lewis describes it like this. He says, we oftentimes find ourselves turning down Jesus, refusing to believe in God because we just can't imagine that anything that good is real. He says, we're like children playing in a mud puddle. And we, we're, we're being offered a trip to the seaside. But we refuse to take the trip because we just can't believe something that great is real. 
And so we just stay in our mud. Repentance unto life is giving up the mud puddle. Saving faith is, is going with the people to the seaside. And, and to be a believer, to be a part of the way or a Christian, as uh, they will later be called in Acts, is to do both. Repent and believe. And the, what, we, what do we then receive? We receive eternal cleanliness. Never call unclean what I've declared clean. And, and that's what I want you to see that, that Christ is offering. He is offering cleansing. He is offering that wonderful feeling when you have a new identity and you are not what you were. And no matter how gross the goo on your hands is, he washes it off forever. He makes us clean and we can never be clean again. We can never be unclean again. Once he makes us clean, we can never be unclean again. Even if you're divorced, in Christ you're clean and no one can call you unclean again. Even if you're adulterous and you've committed that sin you thought you would never commit, once Christ calls you clean, you can never be unclean again. Even if you have uh, just lewd fantasies and you, you feel like if anybody knew what, was, what you fantasized about, you'd be cast out forever. Even if you're addicted to the worst kinds of pornography or child pornography. Once Christ has made you clean, you can never be unclean again. Even if you're poor and you experience the shame of, of knowing that everybody around you falsely thinks that you're poor because you don't try hard. Once Christ makes you clean, you can never be unclean again. Even if you, you failed in life in school or in work and you're surrounded by people who are successful and as nice as they tr claim to be and you just always are looking through those smiles and wondering what do they really think of you once Christ has made you clean you can never be unclean again even if you're overweight and you know that people think bad thoughts about you behind your back and they've called you names your entire life and you believe those those terrible untrue things once Christ has made you clean you can never be called common again even if you just dealt with the, the rejection your entire life of being unpopular nobody likes you and you begin to identify that as as something you deserve because you're unwanted and there's something wrong with you Christ wants you. And once he's made you clean, you can never be unclean again. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we long to hear those words that we've been made clean, that we are in Christ. We are Christ in us. Father, we know he is the, the definition of purity. When he touched the unclean, he made them clean. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to defeat the forces of evil that are even in our own houses, in our own minds, that are constantly 
accusing and calling us unclean and bringing up terrible memories from years and years ago that we just can't forget. Father, would you make us to feel our cleanness? Would you bless the Lord's Supper today as we take it and as we drink that wine? Would we feel that cleansing from all unrighteousness that you promise to those who confess to you? We pray in Jesus' precious name.